Please join me in Genesis chapter 14 as we now begin a new chapter in our series through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. Genesis chapter 14, look with me please. We'll read verses 1 through 16. I'll read and you'll laugh. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, and Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. And these were joined together in the vale of Sedim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedor Laomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Kedor Laomer the king, and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in Ashtoreth Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shava Kirathium, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to in Misfat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazizon Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the Vale of Sedim, with Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, Four kings with five. And the vale of Sedim was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And there that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of, of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also and the people. Amen and amen. Now, a lesser man would have skipped those verses. Amen. (laughs) I should have just started in verse 11, but if we're going to do a verse-by-verse study, might as well read all the verses. (laughs) In this chapter, we come to the first war recorded in the Bible. I suspect there were others before this. Just a hunch. But this is the first time that it's mentioned. I suspect there were more because I understand sinful man and his lust for power. And the reason I suspect there were wars before this is we see in verse 4, this war is a result of them no longer wanting to be under servitude to Kedor Laomer. They've been doing this for 12 years. They've had enough. But I wonder, how were they brought under servitude? Probably through war at a minimum, through intimidation. And so, while this is the first war recorded, there may have been others before this, and the fact is, this war would have went unrecorded had it not been for Abram's involvement. 
and how it affects his life. But my, my point isn't to try to establish when the first war took place, but my point is warfare is nothing new. And as long as there are sinners upon the earth, there will be war. Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7, Jesus said, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And sure enough, we're seeing warfare today in various parts of the world. Why? Because apart from God, man is never content. Always seeking more. There are certain men who, when they obtain power, they possess an insatiable appetite for more power. Which of course leads to more war. And if man is left unchecked by God, there would be those who would stop at nothing to conquer the world. We're seeing in our Wednesday night series through the book of Daniel how the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans had a thirst for power and took over all that they could. And there have been many empires down through the ages who have conquered vast areas of real estate. The largest by far is the most recent, that's the British Empire. Did you know at the height of their empire they controlled about a quarter of the globe. That's amazing to think about. And so they were not all conglomerate, which I think makes them a little unique. But it was said at their peak, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And the the quest for world power didn't end with the British Empire. We saw in the 20th century two wars so great, we call them world wars. And my favorite t-shirt of all time says America, back-to-back world war champions. Okay, well, I love America. That's awesome. (laughs) According to Revelation 13, there's coming a day when one will rise up called the beast, and the world is going to wonder after the beast and worship it. The world. So, this quest for power is nothing new. We find here in chapter 14, there are four federated kings in verse 1, and they're going to make war with five federated kings of verse 2, they're all joined together in this vale of Sedim, which is where the Salt Sea is located, or what we now call the Dead Sea. It is believed that this was not the Salt Sea at this time, because remember, the whole landscape changed after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, it was a well-watered plain, like unto the Garden of the Lord. And so chances are it was not yet a Salt Sea. It's called that because it's written after the fact. And that's what it's known as. But anyway, we saw this kind of thing. You may recall when we talked about uh, Bethel. Bethel was at first called Luz, but it's even called Bethel here in Genesis. That's what the writer knew it as at the time that God was giving it. So I'm not 100% sure why this battle is taking place. I tried to research it a little bit. I didn't have much time to dig into it. But it is my understanding the reason why this is taking place is because this was a very advantageous area to control with trade between Mesopotamia and Egypt. And so whoever controlled this also would benefit off of the spoils, the riches that they could get from controlling this area, and that may very well be the reason why. Now it appears from verse 4 that out of the four kings listed uh, in verse 1, Kedor Laomer was the big man on campus because it says 12 years they served him. And when he's leading into battle... He's the one leading the kings. And this all may sound like trivial information to you, but there is more here than meets the eye at first read. 
If you're a student of God's Word, notice in verse 1 how we read the king of Shinar and the king of Elam. And you say, why is that significant? Remember from chapter 11 that Shinar was where the Tower of Babel was located. And in chapter 10, we were told how Nimrod's kingdom of Babel was in the land of Shinar. Elam is later going to become the capital city of the Persians. So we have a foreshadowing here in Genesis chapter 14 of both the Babylonian and the Persian empires. But more significant here is that Kedor Laomer is called the king of Elam, and Elam was a child of Noah's son, Shem. What's, what's the big deal? They had brought the Sodomites, who were descendants of Noah's grandson, Canaan, under servitude. That's what we're seeing here. Why is this significant? Well, remember the curse against Canaan by Noah in Genesis 9.25. It says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And in verse 26, Noah went on to say to Shem, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And we're seeing that take place here. It's being fulfilled. And so what we studied back in chapter 9, we're now seeing come to pass. In verse 5, Kedor Laomer and the kings, which were confederate with him, they start a military campaign here in the 14th year. And they move easily through the locations that we have listed in verses 5 through 7. In verses 8 and 9, the battle takes place against the five kings of verse 1 and the four kings of verse 2. If I have my math right, maybe it's the other way around. But the kings are battling each other, amen? (laughs) In verse 10, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're defeated. And it's, when it says the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's, it's representing all five of these kings. They're just the, the main ones. We see this when this area is destroyed. It talks about Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed and the cities and the plains. So this is kind of just telling us this is all of them, even though it mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 11, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were spoiled by the enemy. And in the process, we see in verse 12, they took... Abram's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and they departed. But that's not the end of the account. In verse 13, one who escaped, he comes and tells Abram what has happened. And and I just want to get on my soapbox here for just a moment. Would that be all right? Good. In verse 13, we see here, notice, notice carefully what it says, Abram the Hebrew. Did you know the Bible never says Abram the Jew? Abram was not a Jew. You say, well, you're just nitpicking. No, no, no. God's words have meaning, and they're in here for a reason, and we need to learn to say things the way the Bible says it. The Jews come from the tribe of Judah. Abram was an Hebrew. And that's what he's called here. He's never called anything else uh, in the Scripture. So keep that in mind. Why, Why are you telling me this? If you learn to use God's language, it'll help you as you study the Word of God. Now, the fact this one knew to come and tell Abram... I'm trying to get all these facts out of the way to get to my message. If you can't tell, I'm moving fast. The fact that this one knew to come and tell Abram about Lot seems to indicate that even though Abram and Lot had to part ways in chapter 13 due to the strife that was in the camp, evidently their relationship did not come to an end. Are you picking this up? Or else how would this one know to come and tell Abram? How would he even know where to find him? And so I think this is important because remember I said in chapter 13 
that while they parted ways, they did not have a falling out. It's okay if there needs to be a separation, but it doesn't mean that there can't still be a relationship. And so what happens is some jump too quickly to cut someone off after there's been contention. When what we need to do is be more Christ-like. Aren't you glad He didn't cut you off? Well, in verse 14, we see that if Abram lived in America today, he would be a supporter of the Second Amendment. Say, preacher, don't go there. I'm not. (laughs) Upon hearing Lot has been taken captive, he arms his trained servants in his house, 318 altogether, and he pursues after them. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it, to Gideon's 300? Such a small army, but God is able. 1 Samuel 14, 6, For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. In verse 15, his military strategy is to divide up at night, catch them off guard through surprise, and then cause confusion, which, by the way, was also Gideon's tactic uh, when he was attacking in the book of Judges. Abram's plan works. They smite the enemy. They pursue them. In verse 16, Abram brings back Lot and his goods, and he also brought back all the people and their goods. So that's the account. Now what can we learn from this? Well, I believe this is a great passage meant to teach us a great lesson. This will help you as individual believers, and this will help us collectively as a church body. And there's no accident that we've landed on this passage this week. For some of you, this will be very obvious. For others, I'd ask you, just tuck it away. You're going to need it one day. What do we do when a brother or sister falls captive to the enemy in sin? How do we respond when someone makes a mess out of their life? Lot certainly made a mess out of his life. It's okay to say amen. It all began in chapter 13 when he decided to pitch his tent towards Sodom. And now in chapter 14, he's not just toward the city of Sodom. He is dwelling in the city of Sodom. Whatever Lot had hoped to gain by living in wicked Sodom, it was all gone in an instant. And so is the way of the transgressor. Whatever we hoped would be profitable in this world, whatever we thought would be Pleasurable to our flesh, it can all be gone in an instant. Like Lot, we tend to see how close we can get to dwelling in sin without falling in. And we inch up to the edge and we look over, and before we know it, we've fallen in to a disgusting slime pit that we can't get out of. And as we sit in the shame of our consequences, we'll wish we had it all over to do it all over again. We'll wonder, what in the world happened? How did I end up here? Where did it all go wrong? It went wrong the moment you began to dwell around sin. When you started to think upon sin. It went wrong when in your pride you thought you could deal with it and walk away when you wanted to. It went wrong when you did not hide God's Word in your heart. You did not heed the warnings from the pulpit. 
And before you know it, you find yourself enjoying the pleasures of sin. The Bible says they are pleasurable. And it became easier and easier to choose the lust of your flesh over walking in the Spirit. Even though you could sense the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit telling you no, you still found yourself in sin. Let me tell you, the old adage is true. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. And I think all of us who are in Christ today will eventually, we will eventually be confronted with the reality of the internal battle that the Apostle Paul tries to describe to us in Romans chapter 7. In Romans 7 verses 14 and 15, But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. And if we're honest, we're going to be left to conclude just like the Apostle Paul. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Have you come to that realization today in your life? Truly the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Paul went on to say in Romans 7, For to will is present with me. I know I want to do right. I know it's the right thing to do. To will, it is present within me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Listen to me, please. God wants your pride broken. How dare we ever allow a thought in our minds enter in that we have something that we can offer to God in our flesh. That somehow we deserve God's salvation or somehow we can contribute to it or be good enough to earn it. How dare we allow any ideas to enter our mind to say, I have to be good enough to keep it. Listen, don't allow pride to well up and cause you to think you're better than anyone. You walk with God long enough and you'll find I am nothing. I am nothing. We are wicked apart from God. We are hopeless without Christ. We are filthy without His blood. We have nothing to boast of in of ourselves. And I pray we all will be convinced of this truth. And even though many of us here can testify that we've been born again, the fact is we are still robed in this flesh. And as a result, people can end up in sinful situations and they need help to get out. And so it is here with Lot in our account. Lot made a mess of his life and now he's been taken captive and he needs help. One has come to Abram to inform him of what has happened. And so Abram now has a decision to make. Do I go and rescue Lot? Or do I say it serves him right for living among the Sodomites? He should have known better. The temptation is to say, well, you reap what you sow. You made your bed. Go sleep in it. Maybe there's a time for some of that, but I don't know that it's ever our call to make. Rather, we should allow God to make that call. And in the meantime, we need to go after the wayward sheep. 
But what some end up doing instead is they just have to get their dig in. Just have to say something that pumps, puffs them up like, I told you so. Some feel like they just have to be the Holy Spirit and bring conviction into the heart instead of allowing God to prick their heart. When someone's been carried away captive by sin and it comes to our knowledge, that's not the time for you to run them down. You don't need to twist the knife or kick them when they are down. Then what are we to do, preacher? Take your Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 6. Hold your place here. We'll be back. Galatians chapter 6. Notice what it says here. I normally don't have you turn. I want you to see this with your eyes. This is what God says about how we should respond to those who have been overtaken by sin. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So according to this, spiritual believers have a responsibility to help those who have been overtaken in a fault. We're supposed to go after them. We're to seek for their restoration. Notice how this verse does not say, if a man be overtaken in a fault and you feel like he deserves it, then you try to restore him. It doesn't say if you feel like he's learned his lesson, or you feel like now I think they'll never do it again, then you try to restore them. No, if someone is overtaken in a fault, we go after them. We don't do good for others based upon whether we think they are deserving or not. Christ didn't come looking for you because you were something. He didn't come to you because He thought you were worthy. But He came to you because it was and it still is the Father's will. And we see in this passage that we are to go after them in the spirit of meekness. What does that mean? You don't have to get your little jabs in. You're to be meek. Strength under control. You're to be mindful. We don't have to be ugly. But we're to be under control and we're to die to ourselves. We're to consider ourselves. Why? Lest we also be tempted. In other words we need to remember that we are capable of being in that exact same position. And one day it may be us who is in need of restoration. How would we want to be treated if we were overtaken in a fault? We would want forgiveness. So we need to offer forgiveness. We would not want people hanging on to our past mistakes then we don't need to hang on to their past mistakes. If you do, and if you are, you do not understand what forgiveness means. Unfortunately, some people are experts at holding past sins over someone's head. Well, I remember what you did. And you never let it go until you feel like they finally suffered enough. 
Let me remind you of what God's forgiveness looks like. I'm just going to read these to you. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am He that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Micah 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? He retaineth not His anger forever, because He delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And Thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We need to be like our Lord. When He forgives, He forgets. You say, well, we can't do that. I understand that. But we ought to try. We can certainly be forgiving. We don't have to bring everything back up. If we've truly forgiven someone, then it's over as far as we're concerned. We move on to the process of restoration. This should always be the goal according to Galatians 6.1. If we're going to minister to the captives, we have to learn to overlook their past. Remember, the last interaction between Abram and Lot was due to strife in the camp. That is recorded in the Bible. That was their last interaction. And Lot did not defer back to Abram saying, well, God, He's the one that called you to the land. He's the one giving you the land. You pick which way to go. Abram, Lot didn't do that. He just said, well, I'm going to go over there where it's well watered. But Abram doesn't hang on to any of this. And I'll tell you, listen now, your maturity as a believer is going to be tested when it comes to rescuing people in sin who have hurt you. Especially those that you're close to. Isn't it sad that some people will do more and be more forgiving toward a stranger who has wronged them than they will towards those who they know and are close to? Abram fought for his family who was overtaken. Abram cared enough to take action. How about you? Will you fight for your family? Will you fight for your church family? Listen, we don't need to fight against each other. We need to fight for each other. James 5, 19 and 20, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Go back to Genesis 14, if you will, please. And we'll see, it's not just the brethren we need to be concerned about, but we should be concerned for all sinners as well. Notice in verse 16 again, it says, And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, and the people. Abram didn't just rescue Lot, but he rescued all the people that he could, and all their possessions. And I can't help but wonder, 
how many preachers who rail against certain lifestyle choices as if they are unsalvageable in the sight of God would deal with this verse because Abram just rescued a bunch of Sodomites. In case any are unaware, the Sodomites were people living in homosexuality. Remember Genesis 13, 13 says, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And sadly, I know some pastors, if they would have been Abram, they would have rescued the ones they felt were worthy and left the others to just fend for themselves because they're not worthy of being rescued. You stay captive. But wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to go into all the world in an effort to reach all the lost? All people matter to God. And if they matter to God, then they should matter to us. Didn't Jesus die for all sinners? God's Word still says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I love Romans 5.8 But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say in that while we didn't commit certain sins. I'm just saying we need to go after all sinners. God died for all. Therefore, all are worth going after. And people need to know they are worth trying to salvage them. Even after they've made a mess of their life. So who will go after them? Well, notice in verse 14 that Abram armed his trained servants. You know what the church needs today? We need some trained servants. Those who will go after the captives. Those who will rescue the perishing and care for the dying. Those who will reclaim those who are wayward. Who will go? Tell me, brother, why not you? Maybe you're here today and you feel like no one loves me enough to come after me. I don't feel like anybody wants to rescue me. I want you to know this church cares about you. And we want to help you if you will allow us to. Jesus certainly loves you enough. He died to rescue you. He's after you today, but you have to be willing to be rescued. So you have to lose your pride and receive help. Whether you're lost or saved today, maybe you found yourself caught in a slime pit of sin. You may have gotten into that thing by yourself, but you're not getting out by yourself. That passage is telling us that many of them fell into the slime pits and died. You need God's help. Psalm 40 and verse 2, He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. So is there anyone who is struggling hard with sin today? Have you learned that the ways of the transgressors is hard? 
Have you learned your way will never bring peace? Have you learned that there's no blessings in doing things your way? Romans 6.21 What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Where's the blessings from it? Those things that you're now ashamed of, where's the blessings? As Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 2.19 Allow your wickedness to correct thee and thy backslidings to reprove thee. You know what that means? If you're under conviction, I don't have to convince you that you need to get right. Your own sinful decisions have taught you this isn't the way to go. If you're caught in a slime pit, it's time to be rescued. Maybe some of you today, you've walked up to the edge of that thing and you're looking in and you're about to dive in. You don't have to. You don't have to fall in, but you can back away with God's help. If you need God's help today, I want you to come and cry out to the Lord. Talk to God about it. He can rescue. He can save. Let's pray.